Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. This episode is from the years 2014 through 16, when the series was called Childhood, History and Critique. Enjoy. This is part two of a conversation between Holly Brewer and Patrick Ryan for Childhood, History, and Critique, recorded January 2015. I have an article that I still need to publish that I haven't, which came out of my book at one point and I've added to and I've sort of played around with. But it's essentially a critique of, of modern demography and how modern theories are applied to the past, especially the Cambridge School of Population, mm-hmm. started by Peter Laslett. Laslett, yeah. They used demographic models developed for the 20th century to understand earlier periods. Mm-hmm. And they told anyone who wanted to use a different model that they were not being scientific if they tried to vary at all, because then they couldn't do true, true comparisons across time. And they said when, when, when people, they instructions when they, they gave to historians of early America – um, and of other European and non-European societies, that if, if they had a birth record and a marriage record and there was not 15 years between them, that it could not be the same person. And they were never to assume that anybody under the age of 15 married. Wow, that's stunning. It's stunning. And that's in, I, can, I found it in guides and other places. Well, the story I'm going to tell you is, I'm going to leave this person nameless, but is, from somebody who was a graduate student of Darius, Darius and Anita Rutman, who wrote a book called A Place in Time, which is a kind of social history of Virginia. Sure. This student worked with them for a long time, assembling their databases, and they gathered birth and death records and may match things up. And he told me about one case they happened upon involving the marriage of a 12-year-old. That's what everything said. And they had a lot of case records of it. And it was very explicit in all the case records and all the discussions and all the words. And they had a three-day debate among the working group about what to do about this case because you didn't have the mandatory 15 years between. And they eventually decided they had to just ignore the case because it didn't fit with the model. What I like, above all, for historians who think about childhood to do is to make sure they're not imposing the model on the past, that they're really trying to understand the past for in its own sense, and that a lot of these computerized models that we use, in, in fact, make us see the past as much more like the present than it really is. And in fact, I would suggest a lot of the results of a lot of the demographic studies we've seen are, in fact, you know, from early modern England, for example, falsely make early modern England look much more like today, or early America look much more like today's society than, in fact, it really was. And, in fact, your work creates just that kind of estrangement around the category of age. Perhaps we could turn to some of the examples that you provide. One of the things I trace in changing norms on who can testify in a courtroom in terms of age and I show that in the 16th century and 17th century in England and in early America, there were no 
lower age restrictions on who could testify, and there were actually cases where murderers might be convicted on the basis of a three- or four-year-old child, for example, which you really, you just would not see now because we normally don't trust the word of such a young child. We don't believe them for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. As part of these debates about responsibility and consent, there's a, an open argument about whether the words of children could or should be believed and in what circumstances they should be believed, which you see ongoing through the 18th century, the 19th century. And in terms of um, sex case, sexual cases, it actually opened up a big hole, and it made, in some ways, children more vulnerable. Because if you argued that, as Hale did um, and others, that really they, they needed to be 14 years old to give testimony in a courtroom, you opened up just these big holes in terms of their legal protection. So it actually made um, statutory rape that much more important. If you are going to deny their ability to testify, then just the physical act itself becomes, or proving that act becomes, can be, can be, is enough to prove the statutory rape because you can't, there's no evidence, you can't even gather evidence about intentionality. So you're creating legal, legal holes all over the place. And one of the cases I talk about is a Virginia case from just after the revolution involving a girl, Susanna Lee, who, um, who, uh, was raped by her tutor just after she turned 12. And he told her that if she didn't agree to marry him, she would go to the devil when she died and her parents were gone and they didn't realize what had happened. And so she was sort of forced into this marriage at 12 and she was an heiress. And and the court ended up deciding that based on common law precedents, she was old enough to get married, but not old enough to witness in her own case. And it's a really ironic and sort of horrifying example of how the laws were changing in bits and pieces and real people, in this case a young woman, could easily fall through the cracks. And we know so much about her case because her father was so horrified that it could legally happen that he wrote the state legislature and asked for a, a, a legal change in terms of the ability to prosecute um, people like the tutor, which he partially got, not completely. There is, uh, there's irony and there's paradox that statutory rape is, is one element, the con- legal concept of statutory rape is one important element of uh, child protection today, mm-hmm. that it comes with a larger uh, set of concepts, uh, a larger discourse that certainly can allow us to speak about children in ways that advance their dignity in ways that in earlier centuries did not exist or were not speakable. But it also comes, as you say, with holes, with new problems where suddenly they can be protected, but their testimony might not be believed. Right. So the consequences on the ground aren't clear cut in terms of progress Mm -hmm. or decline. Right. Your book really brings those those ideas forward uh, repeatedly. Another thing, though, it seems to me there's a long tradition of in both jurisprudence and in in legal historical work of uh, giving significant weight and legitimacy or historical force to legal legal treaties like Kent or Blackstone or or others that you mentioned. And you 
draw heavily upon those texts in your book, along with, with case law and, and other historical sources. I guess my question is, how should we read these texts as evidence? And, and this fits into, I think, a larger historical debate right. about formal texts, intellectual history mm-hmm. versus cultural, social history. Mm-hmm. One argument could be that if I'm talking about John Locke, if I'm talking about Blackstone, some might say, oh, that's all fine and good, but that's not about real children. Mm-hmm. That's just adults' ideas mm-hmm. that are disconnected from the lives of children. Right. Sometimes this divide is spoken about as the difference between the history of childhood as a discourse and the history of children as a history of persons. Right. My main argument would simply be that they are not fully separable. They are completely connected at so many different points. And when I first started my research in case law, actually in county case law for different colonies and states, starting, I mean, my first work, I started looking at the 1750s. Um, and I ended up going earlier and later, but that's where I started. And I just started plowing through county record books in different places. They were so difficult to understand. There were so many abbreviations and references, and I took careful notes, and some things I understood and some things I didn't. Uh And I remember imagining, wishing I could just talk to a justice of the peace for ten minutes, ten minutes, somebody who lived then and who could explain and decode um, what I was seeing. But, of course, you know, that, that kind of fantasy doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. But it was only after dealing with these records in fairly deep ways for more than a year <laughs> that I started to realize the uh, legal guides mm-hmm. were crucial to making sense of anything. Judges in the, 18, in the 18th century, early America especially, but also in early modern England, rarely had formal training. Judges, especially rural judges, most of what they knew came from reading legal guides that were published and circulated and appeared in libraries. And many of these were pretty straightforward, organized topically with all kinds of instructions. And those explained everything. (laughs) When I used those guides side by side with the original court records involving real children and real people, only then could I sense of and decode what was happening because they were speaking in a foreign legal technical language that we cannot understand without those those guides side by side. And they were citing those guides and they were discussing them and they were mentioning them. So they were clearly reading and interacting with them. They might not always agree with a particular guide. In fact, sometimes you would see whole discussions where they would say, Blackstone says this, and this other guide says this, and Cheney on criminal law says blank, and, and this sort of case law from England says this, and so they, they would discuss them, and then they'd come to their verdict. But essentially we hold with Blackstone that blank. Yeah. Yeah. So you could, what you begin to realize is how, in fact, the high political theory influenced the, the people who were writing the legal guides or how they ignored it in some cases, but in turn how those legal guides were then processed and consumed by the people who were making the decisions. And whether you can then see whether they adhered to them or not very often, but the, the legal guides were absolutely crucial to making sense of what was really going on. And that 
if you do not have those, yeah. you, in fact, are doing a, a very deeply problematic social history where you're using modern conceptions to make sense of the 17th and 18th centuries. You're putting our words in place of theirs, and you're not fully understanding what's going on. You know, I, I, let me give an example, and that is James Smith's work on industrial violence a few years ago, work accident claims for children. Mm-hmm. I had uh, part of, of, of my work where I followed uh, the case law just in Ohio that was, and I was able to, and it was all appellate law. So mm-hmm. it was all the law that I looked at was the judge-made law ruling on um, the, the particular um, uh, instructions to the juries, the definitions used in cases, and what came out was a set of of changes in the late 19th century over the relationships between age and various types of liability, contributory negligence, uh, things like the fellow servant rule. Um, these things were being reconfigured around around age, and the employer li- liability law was changing just prior to the creation of what was what is now workers' compensation or the creation of an administrative law to replace tort in the adjudication of the work accident claims. All of that is very formalistic in what I did because it all dealt with appellate decisions. It's all structured. Right. But what Schmidt's book shows just to, to anyone who's worked in this area are two critical things. If you follow the cases, and he has hundreds, maybe thousands of cases he looked at, two things mm-hmm. come out. The cases followed that shift in the law, and, and this is one thing that's really brilliant about that book, the children and the families are driving changes in the decisions in the case law that the appellate law has to respond to. Right. They're presenting themselves as not competent, the children not competent to exercise due care and if you can't exercise due care, not that you didn't, but if you, you're not eligible to exercise due care, you can't, be, can't contribute to the negligence of the accident, which means the legal exposure falls completely on the employer mm-hmm. because they're not able to protect themselves. So the legal categories are important because they're working themselves out in people's lives, but the children and the families are perfectly capable of learning that legal language and displaying it performing it in the court. Right. And so there's nothing, uh, ideas don't just belong to elites. Nope. They absolutely don't. They frame how everybody thinks. And it's not that people accept elite ideas blindly. They don't. But that they are often reckoning with them. They're not reckoning with everything. And that's part of what's so interesting is tracing how ideas spread. Mm-hmm. And one of the amazing things about so many of these legal texts is they're often citing their sources. <laughs> yeah. You can actually see the spread. You can, you can trace it. You can trace it. You can see um, a county court judge in Virginia citing Blackstone, a section on Blackstone where he talks about Locke, <laughs> where he's discussing Locke's ideas about um, consent to government and um, the ability to vote or whatever. And you can you can just see one, two, three. I mean, even though Locke was dead a hundred years by that point, yeah. or, um, you know, that's just one little example. But it's all over the place, and it's complex conversations ricocheting back and forth. And very often, I would find little notes, little marginal notes in the original copies of treatises when I could get my hands on them. 
as opposed to, you know, PDFs and something. But, you know, there are marginal notes where people would write, Corey, what about, you know, this other case or this other treatise, you know, in the margins of the book they were using? Other thing you could do to really track usage and see, uh, quite aside from when they actually mentioned it, is very often um, many of these legal treatises had subscriptions. So in order to pay for the publication, people had to prepay for the book. Mm-hmm. And then there would be a list of subscribers to the volume. So I would know who actually had copies of these yeah. books in their libraries. And you can also look at wills and many other things to yeah. track that. To try to track what the, what they're reading has been. What they're reading and uh, there's so much more that we could talk about. Yeah, um, what are you doing now? That's what I want to ask you. <laughs> okay. Um, I haven't left the children's stuff completely behind, but I haven't been focusing on it. And what happened was that I got really interested in the question of hereditary status and consent as it applied to African Americans and particularly in terms of slavery. Mm-hmm. This does have some things to do with children for all kinds of reasons, particularly, you know, are you born to a status? What I found when I was looking at so many early modern texts, which in many cases people had never really looked at, or certainly not in this way before, was that in in the 17th century in particular, there was a huge debate about hereditary status and church membership, which often brought up the question of, Slavery, not as well as monarchy. Are you born to a status? Are you born the prince, the son of a king with the right to rule? Are you born a slave, the son of a slave with the obligation to obey? And this would be done in the com- in the context of, are you born a member of a church with the obligation to stay a member of that church so can you be prosecuted for heresy, as in the case of the Catholic Church? Or do you choose your church? Is it a consent is a consensual question. And what I argue in my book is that, in fact, these religious debates about church membership were crucial to the formation of early democratic theory about consent. What I'm, what, what I wondered about in terms of my new project was how do these debates about whether you're born to status or whether you consent to that status relate to debates about slavery in the early modern British Empire? Okay. The book that I'm now writing, and I'm nearly done with, and I got a Guggenheim Fellowship to finish this year, is arguing that, in fact, slavery was much more debated than we've understood. We tend to think of it as something that was an unthinking decision that emerged from the ground up. Okay. And was somehow connected to democracy, to that, to use Edmund Morgan's phrase, American freedom depends on American slavery. Mm-hmm. And I'm arguing in my book that, in fact, the origins of slavery were in were connected not to democracy but to absolutism. The um, Stuart kings of the 17th century actively promoted slavery in their empire as the flip side of their own rights as kings. Okay. So those arguments that I stumbled on about are you born to a status were really crucial for both monarchy and slavery. On many, many levels, the empire actively promoted slavery. And there are some elements of this that directly relate to very particular children, but I think what's most important in terms of the connection to the last book and also in terms of um, childhood itself is um, how much hereditary status mattered to the law, not just in terms of slavery, but for everybody. Which is something you've been pushing for uh, at least 20 years. I'm just thinking back to an article you wrote 98, yeah. uh, remembering correctly. 
Right. And not about patriarchy in, in early America. Right. About and, entail. Yep, exactly. And in that article, I argued that um, hereditary um, land ownership, like that enforced primogeniture inheritance by the oldest son, was far more popular than we realized. And I found early uh, 1705 Virginia law that allowed slaves and their descendants to literally be attached to estates in perpetuity, which looked like feudalism. Mm-hmm. And so, in fact, crucial to the origins of this book was trying to figure out why Virginians were creating what looked like a feudal law and what they were calling a feudal law. And the answer actually has everything to do with this larger larger debates going on across the empire about the hereditary status of people. It's so interesting seeing how these arguments that are really clearly patriarchal arguments linger on in terms of slavery. So James Madison, for example, you can see from his own notes and letters from the time of the American Revolution, had this whole argument of in order for a slave to be freed, both the slave and the master have to consent to the freedom. There's no such thing as being born free for a slave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see those same kinds of arguments in some of the patriarchal theory about monarchy and the nature of monarchical power in the 16th and 17th centuries. Yes. So it's so bizarre to me to see how this lingers on, even in the arguments of a revolutionary like Madison. That's another reason that ideas and, and, and making sure that historians are at least in, as strong in the history of ideas as they are in terms of sociological or anthropological theory is important. Yeah, I think that's true. Otherwise, you just read past, as you were saying earlier, they read past what's important in text and, and only read for how the text will support right. or not support a particular that's historical exactly, theory. That's exactly right. So I think as historians, one of our main tasks is to translate the past effectively. Mm-hmm. And that is, it doesn't mean an anthropological skill and it's not as easy as you would think. We have to recognize what is foreign and different at the same time as we recognize what's familiar. And it's easy to recognize what's familiar. It's mm-hmm. easy to work, look for the words we know and to assume they always mean the same thing. But we cannot. If we're going to do responsible history of real people and of real children, we have to look for what is unfamiliar as well and be ready to understand that words can mean different things to get our heads really into how people thought it was really great talking to you holly okay take care bye-bye